Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a pediatric pulmonologist discusses cystic fibrosis and its therapies. We start pancreatic enzyme replacements. They're little sprinkles of beads that you open up and put on a tiny baby spoon worth of applesauce. They're taking that right before they, they eat, and that carries on through their whole life. Experts from the Upstate New York Poison Center share some summer poison prevention tips and precautions. It may not even be the mayonnaise that becomes problematic, but potatoes sitting out in the sun can actually cause food poisoning. And a pair of doctors specializing in psychiatry tell about their research using music instead of medication to calm agitated patients. 96% of them reported um, that they felt a lot less agitated and that it helped them calm down. All that, plus a selection from The Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll learn some poison prevention tips and precautions to help get us through the summer safely. Then we'll explore the use of music instead of medication to calm agitated patients. But first, a pediatric pulmonologist discusses cystic fibrosis. About 1,000 new cases of cystic fibrosis are diagnosed each year, and more than 75% of those cases are diagnosed before a patient turns two years old. At this point, more than half of the population of people with cystic fibrosis, or CF, are 18 years or older. Here in the HealthLink on Air studio to talk about this progressive degenerative disease is Dr. Chris Fortner. He's a pediatric pulmonologist with expertise in cystic fibrosis at Upstate who directs the Upstate CF Care Center. Thank you for being here, Dr. Fortner. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us what cystic fibrosis is? What, what causes it? So that's a good question. The cystic fibrosis, like you mentioned, it's, it's a progressive genetic disease, but it's caused by inheriting two defective copies of what's called the CFTR gene. CFTR is kind of a long, it's an abbreviation for a very long cystic fibrosis transmembrane regulator. So most of us call it CFTR. CFTR, okay. But when that, when that gene isn't working properly, it doesn't code for the protein that it's supposed to make. And that protein is really important in moving salt and water across the membranes of the body. So do parents know ahead of time that their baby's going to have cystic fibrosis, or is it a surprise after birth? A little of both. So they may know. You know, if they have done genetic screening of, you know, mom and dad through the OB's office, or perhaps they know there's a family history, so they request screening, they might know that there's a chance they'll have a child with cystic fibrosis. Or most of the cases are now picked up by the newborn screening program. So when a baby is born in New York, they, they send a little heel prick worth of blood to the state that tests for a number of metabolic disorders, including cystic fibrosis. So often that's, that's when they learn, when the baby is you know, a couple weeks old and the results from that newborn screening come back. So if the results come back positive, um, do you have to do any more testing or is that um, a, a given that it's accurate? So we're, we always confirm the diagnosis and the main test to do that is what's called a sweat chloride test. People with cystic fibrosis, with that protein not working properly to let salt and water move across the membranes, they end up with very salty sweat. And some parents know this because they've kissed the child's forehead, and they're like, that's weird. This kid's salty taste, compared to salty. his brother. Huh. So, um, but there's a, a formal test that measures the amount of chloride in the sweat, and we're usually able to do that once they're about a month old, uh, or by the time they're a month old, we've got those results sort of confirming the diagnosis. Other than sort of the salty skin, are there other symptoms that the baby might have that would lead someone to think? It's... It's possible. Some children have a, an intestinal obstruction at birth that is caused by not having enough water in the, the what's called meconium, the thick green poop <laughs> that babies have when they're first born. And sometimes in CF, that is too thick and it actually blocks the bowel. So they may not be able to nurse properly or um, you know, pass stool in the first, hour, first 24 hours of life. And when that's going on, we're very suspicious at that point this child might have cystic fibrosis. It's not, you know, having meconium ileus is not the only 
you know, cystic fibrosis is not the only thing that will cause meconium ileus, okay. but that's one of the things that kind of makes us wonder, huh, does, does, is there a family history of CF or is there a reason to think about that? So cystic fibrosis, this can affect the uh, digestive tract, the, yep. the bowel. What else, uh, what else in the body does it affect? So where the protein is important, we talked about the, the sweat glands and the saltiness. It's very important in the respiratory system. If you can't get enough water in the lining of your airways, the, the mucus can't get coughed out. It can't get floated out. So that's one area is in the lungs and the airways. Another area is the digestive system. It also affects the pancreas to a, a significant degree. Many children with CF, their pancreas doesn't work to release the digestive enzymes to break down even breast milk. And it also affects the liver, and it can also affect the reproductive system. Uh, males with cystic fibrosis are essentially sterile because the, the tube to allow the sperm to get out doesn't develop. So even before they're born, they, they don't have that, that connection in the body because it got gummed up with not enough water in it and never developed further. So this is, it sounds like a pretty complicated disease with a lot of factors. It, that, um... it, it can be very complicated. It can affect lots of different organ systems. Part of that is learning what to watch for. You know, as, as parents are going home with a newborn, what Obviously, there's plenty to worry about. You know, am I using the right formula? Am I, you know, are they getting enough sun, sunshine? But the other things they have to worry about is, you know, is, is this kid, you know, he just got a cold from his brother. Is this only a cold or is it something more because of the cystic fibrosis? So there's, there's a lot of things that they're kind of monitoring. I swear they monitor the, the diapers closer than most parents do. And, sure. and many parents monitor those pretty yeah. closely anyway. But in CF, they're they're looking to see does it look like they're digesting the, you know, the breast milk properly, or is there too much fat getting released into their poop? Um, do we need to add medicines? So a lot of the parents are are very watchful, and we try to do a good job in the the early the first year of teaching them what they need to know about CF, but what they need to know over time. So we don't try to hand them the whole thick book at once and say, all right, next time there'll be a quiz. <laughs> wow. So it's a big learning process yeah. and uh, for the family and then for the individual child once they're old enough to sort of handle their own medical Absolutely. stuff, Absolutely. Right? Well, what, what is the outlook for someone who has cystic fibrosis? What, how long do they live? What, what is their life like? So that's a great question, and many parents ask that, and they're like, you know, what's the life expectancy for my kid? And I try to tell them, I try to not give them a number. Not to be evasive, but because whatever number I tell them today is most likely going to be wrong because tomorrow's number is going to be better. There's a lot of research going on in cystic fibrosis, and a lot of things have already helped move the lifespan up. Uh, the the lifespan now is, you know, it, it's in the mid-40s. In Canada, it's actually over 50, so we know that better is possible. So, you know, right now, I, if they pin me down and ask for a number, it's about 44 in this country. That's a huge increase over, I mean, I remember when it was it's teens or young yeah. 20s, right? In, so in the beginning, it was a preschool killer. And wow. with better nutrition and replacing the, the pancreatic enzymes, we then got it to uh, you know early childhood and then to middle school, high school. Uh, now, over half the, adult, uh, half the people with CF in the world are over 18, which is really an amazing milestone. We crossed that about three or four years ago. Wow. Now, there was a movie that came out um, in March 2019 called Five Feet Apart um, about a girl and a boy with cystic fibrosis, a romance movie. Um, the premise, the title um, alluded to that they had to st uh, reduce the risk of infection by staying that far apart. Is there any truth? Is there a five foot rule or something? So it's it's actually supposed to be six feet between patients. And that is based on how far the droplets can spread. People with CF are prone to certain lung infections that can do a lot of damage to the lungs. Bacteria or germs that don't affect you or I or people who don't have cystic fibrosis, but they can spread from one patient to another and cause really substantial declines in lung function. So that's why we, you know, more than one CF patient comes to clinic on a day. So we're very careful to make sure that they're in different spaces and, and separated from each other. Now, if there are siblings with CF, obviously we can't say, take two separate cars. Right. So we, we kind of recognize that they live in the same house. They eat at the same kitchen table. You know, we can't separate every single one of them from every other. But 
within a house, it's likely that they're exposed to the same types of bacteria anyway. So, but the movie did a nice job of, of using CF to tell a story. And you're right, it was a, it was a romance story. <laughs> but the, the part about avoiding contamination or catching bacteria from other CF patients is really important. This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Upstate pediatric pulmonologist, Dr. Chris Fortner, about cystic fibrosis. So let's talk about um, therapy and treatment. Um, nutrition, is, does that, uh, is that different for someone with CF? It is absolutely different. And when they're teenagers, it can be wonderful because they can eat literally twice as much as all their friends and not gain excess weight. Um, the challenge is when they're little, they may struggle to gain sufficient weight to grow well and to grow strong. So their, their calorie demands are much higher. Uh, if, if they're breastfeeding, they have to take supplemental enzymes to help break down the breast milk. They often have to fortify the you know, formula or have a higher calorie density just so they can eat enough to gain weight and grow. Hmm. So that's, that's part of it. Um, they have trouble absorbing, absorbing certain vitamins uh, because the pancreas isn't working well. And so they have trouble having healthy vitamin D levels or vitamin A levels. And many of them from the beginning start on a vitamin supplement to try to overcome that. And enzymes uh, to help the pancreas too? Yeah, so, so okay. enzymes, those are possibly... The earliest we started them was in the newborn nursery uh, when we know somebody wow. beforehand had cystic fibrosis, you know, based on prenatal testing. We, we start pancreatic enzyme replacements. They're little sprinkles of beads that you open up and put on a tiny baby spoon worth of applesauce. It's not even a bite of applesauce. It's really just to keep the spoon wet so the beads stick to it. But they're taking that right before they, mm-hmm. they eat, and that carries on through their whole life. What about airway clearance? So airway clearance is really important. I mentioned that they're prone to having this thick mucus or not enough fluid underneath the mucus to clear it out effectively. Some of our strategies are to try to thin that out um, with specific medicines like Dornase that that make the mucus not as thick or not as sticky. Others try to pull more water in. Uh, We have them inhale a concentrated saline solution to pull more water into the airways and clear stuff out. But uh, a key to it is like physically clearing it out and, you know, shearing it off the airway walls. And we teach parents, maybe not at the very first visit, but hopefully before the child catches their first cold, how to do manual airway clearance. And they, they cup them and do a, you know, cupping on their back over the lung fields to, to shake loose the mucus that's inside their airways. And that carries forward as they get older. We have vests that vibrate and shake the mucus loose in that way. And exercise, especially running or cardiovascular exercise, does a wonderful job of loosening that mucus and helping them cough it out. Well, I wanted to ask about fitness and whether there's limitations, but you make a good point. It, it, that can be helpful. Yeah. For... And, you know, hopefully these are not sick people. Um, they, they do so well, like exercise is a two-way street. You know, they, they feel better from a lung standpoint, but they also feel better emotionally. And there's, you know, we have CF patients that are Runners, we have cyclists, we have competitive skiers, lacrosse players. We, we really encourage physical activity as, as a way to maintain health. Same as my doctor does and, you know, encourages me to get out and exercise 30 minutes a day. It's extra important for CF to, to get that exercise time. Now, since this is a genetic, uh, has a genetic disease, is there a hope for a cure? I mean, do you think there'll be something that comes along in your lifetime that, that turns this disease around? Or cures it? Yeah, very, very soon, I hope. Um, they're, they're doing a ton of research on CF and have been for years. You know, the, the whole mission of the CF Foundation when it was founded, um, which is a, a charitable organization fundraising, but they dedicate their efforts into research. And that's how we end up with, you know, specific therapies like enzyme replacement or Dornace or, um, but now they're looking at things that may end up Maybe not a one-time cure, you know, take this and you won't have CF or take this and your baby won't have CF, but they are very close to some compounds that help the protein instead of not forming and working correctly, it kind of works past the mutation or works around the mutation. So they end up making a protein, a CF protein that works well enough, well enough to let the salt and water travel across where it needs to travel in the body well enough that they may not have a daily cough or mucus buildup that they have to clear out. So there's really exciting stuff going on. They're even studying some, some gene therapy approaches 
these are further down the road. Now we're not looking at a next few years kind of thing, but they are studying, can we have people get just the, the message for how to make the protein? Can we give that to their cells so that even though they got two mutations from their parents, they, they take in this, this extra message and the body uses that to make a, a working protein. So there's some really cool ideas out there. Probably the most close or closest to exciting is they, there's a, a company that's developed a, a triple therapy uh, that is about to be submitted to the FDA for approval. They're doing phase three trials right now. And this triple therapy has three ingredients, two of which help overcome a folding problem with the protein so that it'll fold into the right shape. And the third ingredient, once the, once the protein gets to the top of the cells where it belongs, it helps open it up to let the salt and water flow across it. So there's three ingredients in one pill, but they've, they've seen very impressive improvements, not just in lung function or drop in sweat chloride, but how people feel when they're on this therapy. So that uh, helps the protein work the way it should. Exactly. Basically. And Wow, so that would make this a lot more manageable disease. It could completely change my job, and that would be wonderful. Um, because if, if the protein is working properly, perhaps these, these infections won't even be able to take hold, just like they don't take hold for people who don't have CF. Or perhaps it'll be easier for them to gain weight or maintain weight at a healthy level. Wow, that's exciting. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing this information. My, my guest, My guest has been upstate uh, Dr. Chris Fortner. He's a pediatric pulmonologist and an expert in cystic fibrosis who directs the Cystic Fibrosis Care Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next tips and precautions for a safe summer from the Upstate New York Poison Center. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Summer is upon us, and today we're discussing some tips and precautions to help make sure your summer is a safe one. With me in the HealthLink on Air studio are Michelle Kaliva and Lee Livermore from the Upstate New York Poison Center. Michelle is the administrative director, and Lee is the public education coordinator. Thank you both for being here. Thank, Thank you. you. So when school's out and the weather's warmer in central New York, what types of calls start coming into the Upstate New York Poison Center? Uh, many, many that are outside-related type of calls. So we've been experiencing a lot of rain, and with rain comes the growth of mushrooms. And with mushrooms growing in the backyard, we start to get the phone calls regarding little little ones that have gone up and t- taken a bite out of the mushrooms that are growing. Here's the problem. Poisonous and non-poisonous mushrooms grow side by side. And oh. the only way to know, you can't, you can't eyeball it, the only way to know is to actually have it analyzed by a mycologist, somebody who studies mushrooms under a microscope. So we take mushroom exposures very seriously. We'll have, um, you know, mom, dad, the, whoever's, you know, providing care for the child, keep the mushroom and then observe the child and, you know, let us know if any vomiting happens, if they develop any other symptoms. We can keep them at home, but once symptoms start, if they start, we'll send them into a healthcare facility. So mushroom calls are already happening because of the rain. Some mushrooms can be deadly, right? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So, yeah, I've noticed a lot of mushrooms. Um, so aside from mushrooms, what are the other things this time of year? So berries, berries on bushes. Mm-hmm. I think it's important that if people own um Plants that produce berries, that they have bushes, that they know what the name of the plant is, that they actually have it written down somewhere or put it on a stick and label it and and stick it in the garden so that if a child gets into a handful of berries and they call us, they're able to tell us the name so we can let them know if it's a, a problem or not. Some just cause nausea and vomiting. Some cause actually much worse kinds of symptoms. So berries, mushrooms. Okay. Do are any of the plants outdoors um, dangerous to animals as well as um, potentially children? 
Sure, there are there are we we tend not to do a lot around animal poisoning, but occasionally we will get a call that that a that a dog has eaten a plant. Again, we would ask the name for it. if we are able to tell the caller if we have some information on animal toxicity, we'll absolutely help them. But otherwise, we will transfer them to the animal poison hotline. Oh, okay, all right. Well, um, one thing that I see in my neighborhood are, are the pesticide uh, true green lawn or whatever coming in and spraying the lawn, and you know, you're not supposed to go on the lawn for a certain period of time afterward, but do you get calls from um, people whose kids have gone out onto the lawn? Absolutely. Kids, people, I mean, adults, dogs, all sorts of, of exposures that way. Again, depending on what the ingredient is, what the chemical composition is, depending on whether it's wet or whether it's dry, depending on the length of time, they can develop some types of symptoms. So we say, please heed those warnings very carefully and hope that, and, and they do, that the folks that spray the lawns, that they label correctly and, and have the private signage. I think it's worse when it's somebody who's doing it themselves hmm. and they're going to spray the lawn with a product and they're not going to take the precautions. You have to read the label. If it says wear gloves, it means that the product is going to be absorbed dermally. And that if it's absorbed dermally, it could be problematic. So you have to read the directions. If you're in an enclosed space, wear a respirator over your nose and mouth so that you're not breathing it in. And then, of course, wash, wash your hands. If it is uh, on your skin or on your clothing, you need to, to ensure that that's all washed um, you know, separately and, and well before you put it back on or before you touch food or you, um, you know, expose yourself to that chemical again. And so that's for like lawn pesticides, but there, there's also like bug sprays too, it. right? All of it. All of and it. We're, and we are, we take a pretty conservative approach. If you're going to spray inside your home, we recommend that all food products be put down away. If you have high chair and baby toys, they should be covered. Any food products on the counter, any dishes on the counter, all need to be put away let the spraying happen. Stay out of your house as long as you can. Sometimes it's great if it can even be 48 hours. When you come back in, wash down all the surfaces and then, you know, reintroduce the food products and the toys. But you don't want any of that product on anything that a person could possibly put into their mouth. Okay. Yeah, proper storage, labeling, care of those products. Um, it, it's usually unintentional, but somebody is leaving the product around or it's within reach of young kids. And one of the most common factors for an unintentional poisoning is the lookalike factor. So sometimes a lot of the packaging, if it's, uh, say, ant traps and they have solids and they have liquids that people put around, or if it's in a, a aerosol can, just for kids, they can't read the label, but if it looks attractive and it looks maybe like an air freshener that they're using in the house, a lot of kids love to mimic parents and they think that they're helping out, but they could be spraying, you know, poison in the air and not even realizing it. And we've talked about like, uh, problems that emerge immediately if you're exposed, but, um, there was just a lawsuit, a, a settlement, um, or a jury award, I guess, for linking Roundup, um, to cancer, causing cancer. So some of these are I guess really toxic chemicals. Now, are there any safe, so to speak, pesticides that uh, people can use safely? Or do you just sort of... Um, There's okay. a lot of websites uh, that promote some holistic products, and I think one of the base chemicals is vinegar. Um, oh, okay. it's, it's a great natural type product that acts as a deterrent. Um, pesticides are pretty much designed that they're going to eradicate, kill, fend off the um, whatever the source is, bugs or whatever. And so if we if they look at some of those alternatives, and there are some people that are really uh, proactive about getting rid of chemicals in their household. Mm -hmm, sure. Um, but we all love that instant gratification, and we just want to drive to get rid of it as quickly as possible. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with two experts from the Upstate New York Poison Center, um, Administrative Director Michelle Kaliva and Public Education Coordinator Lee Livermore, and we're talking about how to have a, a safe summer. Um, one of the things, trying to get rid of bugs, it, I mean, we don't want to get bitten, right? And there's a lot, there's bees, there's ticks, there. I mean, there's any number, and you probably get a lot of phone calls at the Poison Center about 
bug bites, right? We, we do. We'll often get bites of, you know, people who get stung by something, by a bee or by a wasp. You know, we think it's important that if someone gets stung and they're having any respiratory difficulty, they're, they're having trouble breathing, they're developing any kind of uh, facial swelling, an excessive rash, they should not call us, they should call 911. That means that they're having an allergic reaction to that, that bee bite. It's an anaphylactic reaction. And you might not know that you're allergic. And you may not know. It, it, you, a person could get bitten several times, never have a reaction, and then on the third time or even on the first time develop a reaction. You don't know. We certainly get those calls. Little kids love to play with caterpillars. So mm. we will get um, calls about the caterpillars getting picked up in the hands and then all of the little stingers on the part of the caterpillar will get stuck in the hands. So we'll tell the parent how to remove them and to wash the hands and the fingers really well. We do get, we do get bites, I'm sorry, we do get tick bite calls. And obviously that's a big concern in our community sure. right now. We're doing a lot to address the, the tick bites and the potential for Lyme disease. So again, if your child's outside, it's a good idea, you know, when you give them that bath to, to check head to toe to make sure there's no evidence of a tick. We don't get a lot of these calls in, in central New York, but we do in our out, other call area, coverage area, are snake bites. Oh. So we will start to see um, one or two snake bites during the course of a, of a day from, uh, well, and we will get them in central New York. The good news, most of the snakes in central New York are non-venomous, which means they're not going to make someone sick. But we encourage people to always call us if they are bitten by a snake, and we'll, we'll help them assess what they need to do next. Okay. Um, what about pool products? Do you see problems with those pool swimming pool products? Oh, very much so, and it goes back to the proper storage, care, and use of oh. it. Uh, early in the season, a lot of people shock their pools, and so that's a pretty high level of uh, uh, of a pesticide that they're using. To uh, it has a lot of chlorine in it, and that can cause irritation on the skin, in the eyes. Um, so making sure those products are up and out of the way. And again, like what Michelle said, uh, proper use of gloves and clothing. Um, it's not, it's not a product that you want to take lightly. Well, unfortunately, the inhalation of chlorine can cause severe respiratory wow. symptoms in some people. So if you are prone to it or you get a big inhalation of it, a big breath of it, um, and you have any kind of coughing or difficulty breathing, that's an immediate phone call. That most likely will result in a trip to the emergency department. Okay, good to know. Um, the uh, fuel that's used in the tiki torches, citronella, those sorts of things, again, it's probably um, storage an issue, right? Sure, and it's when the, the product is being used is when we'll end up getting an unintentional exposure. So reverting back to the lookalike factor, when you take something out of its original package and put it into something else, so it could be a measuring cup or even as the, the torch containers are being filled, um, that a kid might look at that and says, geez, that looks like juice to me. So uh, there have been cases where um, people have had that products and they're out in, in a picnic somewhere and then they mistake it for juice and they pour it in cups mm -hmm. for everybody. So now you've taken it out of the original container. Um, and even when people are traveling on vacation, they like to condense a lot of things. Right. And so uh, we strongly recommend that people program the number for the poison center into their cell phones. Uh, and that number is 1-800-222-1222. And it can be dialed from anywhere in the United States and the U.S. territories. And the call will always be routed to the closest poison center oh, from know. where the call originates. Okay. Well, it's picnic season, um, people eating outdoors. Do you get more calls about foodborne illnesses we, this time of year? We do, and, and especially from large gatherings. So it's like a family reunion, and everybody's so excited and distracted that they leave the, the mayonnaise products out too long. Actually, it's kind of interesting. The mayonnaise, it, so, there's some mayonnaise that have enough preservative that it may not even be the mayonnaise that becomes problematic, but potatoes sitting out in the sun can actually cause food poisoning. Um, any of your prepared foods, uh, deli meats, that kind of thing, sitting out in the sun can be problematic, or undercooked food. Um, even shellfish, to make sure that it's fresh and that you know it's been uh, purchased from a reputable food 
source so that, that um, you know, that it's fresh, that it's safe, that it was harvested at the right time. Well, much of what we've um, talked about today is sort of aimed at parents of small children, but the Poison Center gets calls about adult poisonings or accidental exposures too, right? Oh, all, all the time. And uh, sometimes it's, you know, just being a little careless, leaving something out, um, not paying attention to the expiration dates and labeling and things of that nature. Uh, sometimes we might think it might be a strange, you know, call, but um, it, it comes down to some basic common sense, especially when it's like food products or um, e- even the use of chemicals throughout the household. Storage, again, is one of the most important things, reading the labels, knowing what you have. Um, car wash products can be very caustic when you have uh, chemicals that clean chrome and wheel mm. cleaners and those sort of items. Um, there have been calls to the Poison Center where the kids are helping dad wash the car and then they get into one of these caustic products. So just being aware of what product you're using, how you're using it, and then of course how you do the proper storage. Because it only takes a second to have an incident happen. I'm glad you mentioned the car wash products. I wouldn't have thought of that as being something to be wary of. But um, anyway, good to know. For adults, the other issue is what medication are they on? We get sun poisoning and sun exposure related problems. So if you're an adult and you're on, or a child, but let's focus on the adult for a moment because they tend to be on more of these types of drugs. If you're on a drug that actually has, is contraindicated to be in the sun, you could become very ill from that. So it's important to make sure that you know if, we don't get a lot of it, but if the sunshine is contraindicated that you take precautions, stay inside or wear a hat. Is it from the heat or from the direct light? It, it, it's, or either? Either. Oh. Mm-hmm. You can have some photosensitivity um, as well as getting overheated. So we, can, we do see, we get, there is such a thing as, as sun poisoning. From just being out too long, it can drive your temperature right up, and that gets very problematic. Well, this has been a lot of good information. Thank you both. I appreciate it. My guests have been Administrative Director Michelle Kaliva and Public Education Coordinator Lee Livermore from the Upstate New York Poison Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, can agitated patients be calmed by music as effectively as with medications? Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Music has the ability to influence the mood of listeners, but is it powerful enough to calm someone who's agitated? Let's explore that idea. With me in the HealthLink on Air studio are Dr. Trevor Scudamore and Dr. Mark Weiner, two physicians who are residents at Upstate in the psychiatry program. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. So you've actually conducted a study on whether music can be used instead of medications to reduce severe agitation in patients who are hospitalized in a psychiatric unit, right? Sure. Yes. And now, before we get into that, has science proven that music has therapeutic value? Um, In and of itself, it's been shown that it can help in different clinical circumstances, like it has been pretty extensively studied uh, about its utility in dementia. Um, There hasn't been that much done about its utility in the case of agitation, and so that's something that we wanted to explore. And let me ask you, from the psychiatry perspective, what what is agitation? Is there a definition for it, like a medical definition? Um, So agitation is basically, um, it's the behavior that someone exhibits when they have unmet needs or they're unable to communicate a need, And it's considered sort of a maladaptive response to that sort of frustration that builds up. And it can um, manifest in a variety of ways. One of them is physical aggression on a unit, um, yelling at staff, or disrupting, um, you know, the therapeutic environment in general. 
And it can be caused by, I'm assuming, any number of things can make a patient agitated. Yeah, it could be anything from, um, for example, like a, a disagreement between them and a peer um, in a medical unit or a disagreement with a staff member or not getting their dietary needs met. I mean, the list can go on and on. But usually what it comes down to is that there's a, a need that's not being met. And then typically this has been treated with medication? Yes. So it depends on the level of agitation. You know, it ranges from mild to severe. Um, if it's mild, usually you try to, uh, you know, calm the patient down, um, redirect them, and avoid medications. But when it reaches a kind of a moderate level where there could be a risk for uh, their own safety or the patient harming other people, um, then we start to look at medications. And usually we offer oral medications as the first option, and uh, the patient's offered this, and if they refuse, and the situation escalates, and it becomes a dangerous situation, then they might need a, an injection. Um, so that's kind of the, uh, the routine procedure on the inpatient psychiatric unit. So you two were wondering whether music might be helpful instead of the medications. So tell me how you, how you set your study up. So, I mean, we basically had a, a question, and that was, overall, could we reduce the, uh, the patient's uh, reliance on medications to uh, de-escalate themselves and uh, calm down and uh, maybe overall reduce their level of agitation? Um, so what we looked at was um, when we offered music as an alternative uh, for the patient, if that reduced uh, the number of administered or given um, medi agitation medications. And so we, it was a six-month study. Um, and uh, basically, there was three months with no music uh, during the project. And then there was another uh, three months where uh, music was offered as an adjunct treatment, as we like to call it. So the patients had a choice uh, whether they wanted to use the music or not. Yeah, and it's, it's not like they were uh, just suddenly made aware of this option. Uh, right when they arrived to the unit, they were informed that the uh, study was occurring and basically that um, music could be chosen um, during their stay. All right. So how, would that, how did it work practically? Um, did they have personal music or was it overhead? How did... Um, so there was a, an iPad uh, that was in the nurse's station that they had access to. And whenever the patients wanted to listen to the music, uh, they could choose to go and um, ask staff if they can have wireless headphones that were connected with Bluetooth. And once they did that, they were able to select the genre of their choosing. Um, and then they were able to, they were given the wireless headphones and they were allowed to listen to it for upwards of 30 minutes um, and to see if that can have an effect and help calm them down. So um, what were some of the genres that they could choose from? Um, it was everything from classical music to jazz to rock and roll, pop music. So their choice of a playlist that, did, did you put together a playlist? or? Yeah, so there was some um, basically pre-chosen uh, pre, uh, playlists off the uh, music app. And uh, they just had to choose the, uh, the genre of music. And then it played itself out for them. Uh, during the treatment uh, period. So after the 30 minutes, um, they would give the headphones back or could they continue listening or? This was a major concern um, from the nursing staff that the patients would not give back the headphones afterwards or that this could create a new situation. But what we found was for the most part, um, the patients did give up uh, the headphones afterwards and 96% of them uh, reported um, that they felt a lot less agitated and that it helped them calm down. So you surveyed the patients themselves after? Yeah, we, we basically had two types of surveys. Um, one was from the nursing perspective. Um, they would see how the patient's uh, level of agitation was decreased and record this. And then the other was from the patient's uh, subjective experience um, basically, they would say how uh, the, the music uh, changed their uh, inner sensation of uh, anxiety and agitation. 
and the patients um, are all inpatient psychiatric patients with a variety of diagnoses, I'm assuming. Yeah, um, and the most common types of illnesses that, um, that the patients had in this uh, project were um, depression and, any, and psychotic spectrum illnesses. All right. Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with psychiatrists Trevor Scudamore and Mark Weiner. They're both uh, residents in the psychiatry program at Upstate. So you, uh, you were initially looking to see whether you could use fewer medications. So what were your findings regarding that? The, the patients that ended up using the music did not use the medicine? or So... Um... What was made clear was that if they still needed the medication after they listened to music, it was still available to them. If they still, uh, you know, were exhibiting disruptive behavior or if they still had a need for it. So even if they were to listen to music and they still needed it, it was available. But what we did find was um, when you compare the three-month period wherein um, the music was available and the three-month period when it was not available, the amount of medications that are typically used for agitation were used less during the three-month period when the music was available. Um, and so, for example, the two most common medications that were used for agitation, which were, uh, Trevor, correct me if I'm wrong, haloperidol and olanzapine, they were used at a lower frequency during the time when music was available. Now, what is, um, what's the downside to using the medications? Why would you want to necessarily see if um, music could be helpful? So uh, there's a couple of different reasons. Um, one of the reasons is that the medications um, could cause side effects, uh, like all psychiatric medications and medications in general. Some of those side effects can include some stuff that you really do want to avoid, like uh, weight gain, diabetes, involuntary movements, constipation. So you do want to avoid these kind of side effects whenever you can, of course. And the other is that you do, um, giving someone medications against their will is not, is not, um, something that we want to do all the time because it sort of takes away a sense of agency and it can induce feelings of helplessness. And so, of course, that's something we want to do when already being on an inpatient unit, sometimes involuntarily, can be extremely stressful. Are there any side effects to music? Uh, so far as we know. Um, Not a single patient has said that they had a side effect. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, I noticed in your paper that you said there was an increased use of a couple of medications during this time period, though, um, diphenhydramine and benztropapine or yeah, benztropapine and uh, the Benadryl. So these medications, uh, they're also given for side effects of antipsychotics. Uh, so that kind of uh, skewed our results because yeah, the Benadryl sometimes can be given for very mild. Um, agitation, um, but it's also used along with uh, cogentin um, to uh, deal with the side effects of uh, extra pyramidal uh, symptoms, um, which mm -hmm. is basically a movement disorder related to um, antipsychotic medications. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and to clarify, ben, uh, cogentin is another word for benzotropine. So. Okay. Well, you also noted that during the three months when music was allowed, the length of stay was shorter for the patients who used music. Did you expect to see that? This was actually kind of a surprise uh, result because I think, you know, it was a kind of a decent uh, decrease. It was almost you know, two days uh, less on average during the stay. But um, and, you know, for these patients, especially the ones that, you know, might not benefit from staying on the inpatient unit longer than necessary um, and that need to get out basically into the community and get their outpatient treatment um, that could definitely be a possible benefit from uh, this treatment if it does directly improve that outcome so it's something that we will probably look at more in the future um, in our research well, let me ask you, what else you intend to do um, in terms of music as therapy? Are you going to do any more research projects? Uh, so we want to look into ways to incorporate it more into um, their treatment in general and make it more accessible to them. So one way we were going to look into doing that was having it so that they didn't need to go to the nursing station, for example, to use it. We want to make it um, find a way to safely have it more available to them and whether and how we're exactly we're going to do that this time is we're not exactly sure. But we do want to make it as easy as possible for them to access these uh, ways to calm themselves down, such as music. Yeah. 
So we, we actually were thinking um, through some options here, um, possibly having the patients access uh, the, the iPad, let's say, behind plexiglass and push a button so that they don't have to approach the nursing station to choose the music. And then they can receive the headphones either from the uh, staff or it can be made available in another way. So we're kind of just at that point where we're trying to think how we can implement uh, these changes. Do you envision this as something that a patient um, would ask for or that a provider um, might suggest to them? Um, usually we allow the patients to ask for the music. Uh, basically because, uh, as we were talking about earlier, there's a, a sense of autonomy with being involved in their care. And the fact that they can choose uh, the music might also have an added uh, benefit for reducing their agitation. Uh, have you done any comparison between um, which genre might be more helpful than another? Or, or whether there's a difference in listening to a type of music? Um, so we haven't looked at that uh, necessarily. We just wanted to, for the purposes of this project, let them choose um, to give them as much freedom as we could during the process. What, what made you think of music? Do you have music backgrounds, either of you? Um, well, I mean, I play, I'm very into it myself. I like to play guitar. So I've always noticed that it helps me to relax. So... I figure if it could help me, then it could most likely help other people. <laughs> so. And, you know, it's, it's a very new area of research. Um, you know, most of the uh, previous uh, studies using music on um, medical floors or psychiatric units has been giving music to demented uh, patients and uh, seeing how they respond. But there's not so much um, background information on what types of music help which type of which types of patients um, in the uh, at least the psych, uh, you know the general psychiatric population so it's definitely something we want to look at in the future um, there are some uh, papers like there was one for a forensic uh, psychiatry journal that talked about basically hip-hop and working through the lyricism of that and the rhymes and the, the cadence and the beats associated with that kind of music as having a a good uh, positive uh, effect at reducing um, anger and uh, stress in some patients. So this is a very new area, and it's definitely something to look at. That's interesting. I appreciate you both coming here to share information about this with our listeners. My guests have been psychiatrists Drs. Trevor Scudamore and Mark Weiner. Uh, they're residents in the psychiatry program at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Alexandra Godfrey is a PA working in two outreach emergency departments in rural Appalachia. She began to write when one of her children became ill. She sent us a nonfiction piece that is powerful and unbearable, and yet a beautiful testament to love. I shall just read an excerpt from the photograph. When my son needed surgery as a newborn, I told the nurse I wanted to wrap him in my arms and take him home, but the mortality rate for his heart defect without surgery is 100%. Putting my baby son down on the operating table for a surgery he might not survive took all of me. I vowed then that I would do everything in my power to protect him forever. I never knew it would be so hard. This time, there was no data to look at. No anecdotal evidence, no experience. Every decision carried a risk. Not a single person on the planet had been in this particular medical circumstance before. Three surgeons looked at his case, and the cardiologist turned to us and suggested we decide. A counselor recommended we select the choice that, if he died, we would regret the least. Isolating, impossible, raw, that's how I made my decision. Now a muddle of wires and lines stop him from moving. His fingers are slightly flexed, but he can't bend his elbows. His hands are turned upwards toward the ceiling. 
his palms in surrender. He is a surgeon's Picasso. He loves snowboarding, climbing, and mountain biking, baseball, pineapple, and pizza. He is smart. He loves statistics, chemistry, and math. He made his calculations, and I made mine. I like the idea of being a pioneer, he had wrinkled his nose and tilted his head. But all the same, I only have one life. He had been telling me not to blame myself if he didn't make it. I open my eyes to my son's ashen face and colorless lips. He is looking at me. It's evening. A small window set in a recess by the bed gives a glimpse of leaves standing out against a dusky sky, hypnotic hues of red, orange, and yellow filtering through the casement. He doesn't know if it's day or night. He can't see the view that everyone else sees. He is looking at me with his wide open slate eyes and poppy seed pupils. I am his viewing and he is mine. I touch his hand and he smiles. Even though my son has just been taken off life support, he smiles at the sight of me. Who does that? Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, everything about diagnosis and treatment of headache. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.